Let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 18. We left off at verse 15 last week, and we will be finishing up chapter 18 and getting most of the way through chapter 19 this morning. Back in the first half of chapter 18, these three men kind of surprise Abraham at his tent. And one of them we know is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's called a Christophany. And the other two are angels. All of them seem to appear as men. Though there are hints in the text that Abraham recognized that they weren't just ordinary men. And we'll see evidence this morning that the men of Sodom knew these men were angels of some sort. Abraham has a meal prepared for his three guests, and they eat and talk under this tree out in front of their tent. All the while, Sarah is eavesdropping from inside the tent. She can hear what they're saying, and she laughs in her heart when Abraham is told by God that he will have a child. And the Lord hears her laugh within her heart. He questions her. She denies having laughed, but she certainly isn't fooling him. He lovingly responds, no, but you did laugh. Now, how many times do we find ourselves in the same position? You know, trying to convince God that we didn't just do what we definitely just did. Hebrews 4.13 says that there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's powerful. It's a fool's errand to try and hide our sins from him. Rather, he wants us to repent of them and ask for his forgiveness. That's where we left off last week at verse 15. Now, coming into verse 16... The narrative picks up with these three men and Abraham under that tree. There's no break. Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. So Abraham is walking with his guests towards the city of Sodom to kind of point them in the right direction. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. In just a moment, Abraham will be asking the Lord, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And this is exactly the lesson that God wanted to impress on Abraham's heart. He wants Abraham to get this part of his character right. The Lord knows Abraham, and he knows that he'll pass on what he knows of God to his posterity, to his children and their children's children. And he wants to use this lesson as a vehicle of instruction for Abraham and his children. 
This is also a great statement to Abraham's character. The Lord himself says, For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. God knows he'll raise his children with the knowledge, and not just knowledge, but true knowledge. He'll raise his children knowing the one true God. He wants to reveal his justice to Abraham in this situation. In this whole situation of Sodom and Gomorrah. No doubt there's justice meted out, but it is just as the word implies. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. That's not that God needed to go down there in order to know what they were up to. He's omniscient. He knows everything all at once. And you hear people say, well, is there anything God can't do? Yes, there is. He can't learn because he knows everything. Now, this could simply be for our sake that he goes down and physically looks at the city. You know, from our human vantage point, it's easier for us to accept God's judgment of a situation if we know that he sees all sides of it. And of course he does. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Now, this is really special. Verse 23. And Abraham came near and said. Abraham is struggling to understand the judgment that's about to be meted out. He evidently already knows, at least in part, God's plan for the cities of the plain. But he's having trouble accepting it. And there's no doubt in my mind that he's worried about his nephew, Lot who he knows is living in Sodom. But I think there's also a deep concern there for the general population of the cities. Remember, Abraham took his small army up and rescued the people of Sodom from those conquering kings. That was back in chapter 14. He probably knew a few of these people in the city. I'm sure he'd talk to him on the way back, on the way south from rescuing them, right? What does Abraham do when he struggles to understand God's plan? He drew near to the Lord. What do we tend to do when we can't quite wrap our mind around what God has in store or what God's doing in our lives? If it's in relation to a judgment, we maybe tend to clam up. We tend to shut ourselves off from God. But what if instead of doing that, we actually sought him that much harder? We pressed into him 
harder. That's a time to seek him and seek his will, not to turn away. Because if we understood who he is, and we understood his plan for us, as revealed in the scripture, maybe we could gain some perspective on why he does what he does. When we struggle to understand what God is doing, we should draw near to him. And Abraham came near to the Lord and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is Abraham wrestling with the idea that God is going to judge these cities. You can almost see the thoughts popping into his mind as he speaks. It's like there's no filter. He's just saying what he's thinking. And he's trying to rationalize and work through this situation. You can also see him trying to apply what he already knows of God to this new situation that he finds himself in. It's like he's talking through his thoughts here. And verse 26, instead of being angry with Abraham for questioning his judgments, God extends a very gracious reply to him. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And this is the heart of the Lord. He seeks to forestall his judgment and to save those who accept him. Ezekiel says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not that he's a police officer in a speed trap waiting to catch us. He's not out to get us. And he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And if there were such thing as wicked, these people were the very definition of it. The people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Peter writes that the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he wants for us. You know, you ask, what is the will of God? The will of God is that all should come to repentance. That's what he wants. Verse 27 Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak 
suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. He knows his patience (laughs) should be wearing thin. I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Still, the Lord replies the same. He's not willing to destroy the city if only 20 righteous people are found in it. And this is a good model for fathers to follow. God continues to entertain the line of questioning from Abraham. He doesn't brush him off and say, hey, I'm working on some other things. I need you to take a break with the questions. He has the authority to say, because I said so. I will judge this city because I am the right and the true judge of the earth. I have the authority to do that. He does not appeal to authority. He rather stoops down to Abraham's level and actually hears his concerns. He hears them, he understands them, and then he replies to them. Verse 32, then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And it seems that that pacified Abraham. That satisfied his question. Because he doesn't continue. He stops at 10. Why that is, I'm not sure. It could have been that the number 10 was how many family members he had in the city. We know he had four daughters. Two of them were married. His wife and he had all lived in the city. Could there have been more people he he had loved? I don't know. I don't know why he stopped at 10. But the point is clear. God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And that's what he's trying to impress on the heart of Abraham. I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. God has now impressed on Abraham's heart a mark of his love and his justice. And this is something that Abraham will pass on to his descendants who God said that he would multiply as the stars of the sky. Now, as we approach the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, we may also have trouble reconciling it with our concept of a loving God. But we must understand that these people had already been given ample opportunity to turn to the true and living God. They had already had the opportunity to turn from this unclean lifestyle and turn to the Lord. They had the testimony of Abraham and Lot, two righteous men who I'm sure bore their testimony openly. Now, how effective they were, 
is up for debate. You know, Lot surely was living in a compromised position. We know that that destroys a testimony. It's hard to, to think on what could have been. And although Abraham lived far from the city, I would venture to suppose his testimony was even more effective than Lot's. When we live in compromise, our testimony, our witness for Christ is watered down. And it's painful to realize that Lot may have been an effective witness had he not lived his life in compromise. But an even stronger display of the power of God Almighty was witnessed by the people of Sodom when they were rescued by Abraham. This comparatively small band of just over 300 armed servants defeat these four kings of mighty conquering nations. That should not have happened in the natural. And Abraham did well. He glorified the Lord in his victory. There was no doubt that that victory belonged to the Lord. And all the people of Sodom witnessed it. And they witnessed the testimony of Melchizedek as he went out to meet with Abraham in the plain. They were given many chances to glorify God, but the people of Sodom returned to their city, Lot did too, and continued in their old ways, not taking heed to the Lord. He is long-suffering. He does forestall his judgments, but there comes a time when iniquity simply reaches its limit. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about God measuring time morally, not by the calendar, not by the clock, but morally. At some point, he can't allow it to go on. In the case of the Amorites from Genesis 15, 16, their sin had not yet reached its limit. They still had some time in God's calendar. But now the people of Sodom and Gomorrah have found their limit. And keep in mind, too, that it wasn't just those two cities that were judged. It was all the cities of the plain in that area. Modern archaeologists think that this was south of the Dead Sea, just south of the sea. And this whole exchange between Abraham and the Lord is also one of the most graphic examples in the scripture of intercession, appealing to the Lord for another's behalf. Our prayers should be like Abraham's. His was reverent. I am but dust and ashes. He puts himself in the proper position. It was specific. There was no doubt about what he was talking about, who he was talking about, and he was persevering. He didn't just stop and give up, close his Bible, go do something else. He persevered in speaking with the Lord. And he did all of this while retaining the character 
and will of God as his backing. And that's how we should intercede for others. Remarkable example for us. Verse 33, So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So he went back to his tent with Sarah. I can't imagine the conversation they had after that. And chapter 19, the scene is now shifting to the city of Sodom as the two men who left Abraham and the Lord come into the city gates. Chapter 19, verse 1 reads, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So right away, Lot seems to know that these men are special. It's not clear if he knows these men are angels right away or if they just appear dignified walking into the city. But he gets up from where he was sitting, goes over to them, and bows himself in front of them. And this is not worship. This is simply a sign of respect. He is respecting these guys. But the fact that the text does call them angels here, when it called them men in chapter 18, that does signify, at least partially, that their true nature was somewhat known. And again, we can't be sure, but that's a hint. Lot's bowing to greet them, too, shouldn't be read as him worshiping these angels. Just that sign of respect. The fact that Lot was sitting in the gate of the city tells us that he was, at the very least, an accepted member of the community, and he was engaged in commerce. At the most, he was an official in the city. And experts go back and forth on this, but usually the people who would sit in the gate of the city acted as judges. They ruled in disputes, and they represented the people in some form or fashion. But the city gate was also a common place for people to sell goods because guests of the city would walk in through the gate and the merchants could come to them and say, hey, here's what you need. They're just coming in from a long walk, maybe a ride, and they need water, they need food, sustenance. So the merchants would set up their booths at the gate and sell to these visitors coming in. Regardless of what exactly it means, we know that Lot made his home in Sodom. Knowing these men were special, he offers them to spend the night at his home. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, 
No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Lot certainly knows what the men of this town are capable of, and he knows the danger that these guests would face should they choose to spend the night in the open square. Were the angels testing Lot to see if he would be hospitable to them? We don't know. But he insists that they stay with him, and they, they heed his warning, and they go into his house to stay with him. Now, again, we must understand the emphasis that this culture places on hospitality. That is integral to understanding this whole account. By taking these men into his home, Lot was responsible for their safety. Their welfare was his responsibility now. Now, verse 4 is where we get kind of crazy. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. The text is emphatic that all the men from the city were surrounding the house. It's not some fringe population. It's not some minority group. It's, at the very least, most of the men in the city. It seems to indicate that it was all of them. Young and old, from every corner, every quarter of the city, they come and surround Lot's house. We don't know how many guys this could be. We really have no idea, but this was quite a substantial city. You know, one of the reasons that God judged them was they had full bellies and idle time. That means that they produced more than they needed. There was a surplus of production so that they could specialize in labor. And, you know, just basic economics. They can specialize in labor and then they can trade. They can barter and buy things. That whole system results in people having more time to get into trouble. Sound like anything? (laughs) It's crazy. But that's one of the reasons that they were judged. So my point in saying that is this was a substantial city. It was not a small town. Verse 5, And they called to Lot and said to him, Now, this is the men speaking that are surrounding his house. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. They clearly announce their intentions, evil intentions with these new visitors. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. He actually goes outside of his home to this mob and tries to calm them down, get them to back off. He tries to reason with these men. See now, 
I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. He's willing to give up his two virgin daughters to this mob to fulfill his duty of keeping his guests safe in his house. Remember the emphasis they place on hospitality. We don't get this with our Western minds. But in this culture, it was the highest honor when someone came to your house. You were to protect them. And this is the extent that Lot was willing to go to ensure these men's protection. The whole reason that they came under his roof was to seek protection as opposed to being out in the open square. But the mob's reaction to Lot's concession says a lot about them. In verse 9, they say, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, speaking of Lot, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. They did not appreciate Lot making a moral judgment about their actions. Now, indulge me in a thought exercise momentarily. Is Lot correct that what they intended to do was wicked? Yes, of course. But what is the basis for that assertion? What basis do we have for saying that behavior is wicked? The creator of the universe says so. He's the ultimate authority on right and wrong. So why did the men of the city deny that that was indeed wicked behavior? Well, I would suggest that they did not like to retain God in their minds. You immediately think of Romans 1. They didn't glorify him as God. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And Romans 1 does break down this whole situation for us. It shows what happens when this failure to retain God in the minds of the people starts to lead to a breakdown of society. And this is all a downhill slope for humanity. When you take God out of the picture, an objective view of right and wrong falls out of its proper context. And very soon, you're left with this soup of moral relativism that we see poisoning our younger generations today. And they have such a hard time reconciling the difference between right and wrong simply because they're not given a foundation of a just and holy God to build their worldviews around. That's the foundation that has to be laid. A just and holy God. Instead, they're being fed a religion of materialism and naturalism which its whole point 
is to place the created world above the creator. That is the objective of materialism. And if Darwinism reaches its logical end, you're left with no sense of right and wrong. Because the goal of a species is survival and reproduction. If survival and reproduction are the highest forms of truth, then murder is good because it may preserve myself. Rape is good if it passes on my genes. This is the logical end of Darwinism. It's evil. And we're left with this totally depraved and degraded society that can't function. Morality is not relative to the individual. Morality and truth are determined by God and given to us through his word. If you decide to ignore or reject it, that's on you. But you don't get the privilege of assigning your own moral values to actions. That is not your place. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. These angels have to step in, really to save Lot. A great turn of events there. Because the mob is just pressing him so hard. The angels strike all of these men with blindness. This word for blindness is used only two other times in Scripture and is also translated as blindness there. So that's a pretty good reckoning of it. I think it's the King James that renders it as confusion. The idea is that they have no idea what's going on. They cannot find the door because of this blindness. But these men were so intent on knowing these guests of Lot that they continued looking for the door in their confused, blind state until they had wearied themselves. It seems to me like the natural response to this would be trying to stumble your way back to your house. But they were so blinded, so governed by their fleshly appetites that they tire themselves out trying to sin. It's ridiculous. We must ask ourselves why this mob sought only to have relations with these two angels that entered Lot's home. If they just wanted relations with another man, weren't there plenty in the mob to choose from? Why were they so insistent on these two guests in Lot's house? They seem to all want the same thing. Considering these questions, I believe that there was something more than simply a same-sex attraction that was driving these men into insanity. It seems 
that they knew Lot's guests were angels, and they craved intimacy with them. And yes, this traces back to the events of Genesis 6, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, bore giants to them. Some of that activity had spilled over into their society, and the men of Sodom desired a different flesh. Heteros, sarks. We'll see that in Jude. Could it be that the men of the city recognized the true nature of these angels and so desired that kind of intimacy that they would stop at nothing to find it, even clamoring around in their blind, confused state? The little one-chapter book of Jude gives us further insight into this idea. Let's turn together to Jude. It's the book right before Revelation. And a few verses in, starting in verse 5. Verse 5 reads, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, that's that phrase, heteros sarks, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Those are some heavy, heavy words from Jude. Verse 2 actually gives Jude's reason for writing. He says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So he goes on to demonstrate how false teachers, whom he's writing about, will receive the judgment that's coming to them. The big theme here is justice and judgment. They can't escape it, the false teachers. And in verse 5 and on, he uses some Old Testament examples of people and angels who received judgment from God. They're just judgment. And his point in using these examples is to demonstrate that the false teachers will receive justice just as all these other evildoers did. Verse 5 is where these examples start. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So God judged those who still didn't believe, even after witnessing such a miracle as the Exodus. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, Jude assumes that his reader knows which angels he's talking about. The angels that did not keep their proper domain 
are the same angels from Genesis 6 who procreated with human women. They sought after strange flesh. Remember that because it will become important in just a second. Verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Verse 7 is the key verse that we're going to look at. Verse 7 indicates that there was more going on in Sodom than just homosexuality. There were some other aberrant sexual practices. And this is also the big reason why I tend to think that the men of the city knew that those were angels in Lot's house and why they tried so hard to get at them. I've got a graphic for you showing some of these words as I go through them. But in Greek, similar to other languages like Spanish, words have genders. There's a pronoun used in verse 7 that must agree with the noun it's referring to. There are a few nouns in this sentence that the pronoun these, to tois, could be referring to. We have angels, agalos, Sodoma, Sodom, Gomorrah, Gomorrah, and polis, the cities. These are all nouns. And then on the next slide, the pronoun to tois, which is translated these, you see in verse 7, in a similar manner to these, that masculine pronoun has to match up with a masculine noun. And as we've listed out these possibilities, there's only one that it could be. A similar manner to these referring to the angels who did not keep their proper domain. Now I'll read verse 7 with the pronoun taken out and the noun in there. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to the angels who sinned, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Both the angels who sinned and Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain went after strange flesh, heteros sarks. That means a flesh different from their own. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 39, and 40, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. It's different. So Paul distinguishes the flesh of men and the flesh of angels as being different. And all of this strongly suggests that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't stop with homosexuality, but at least in part involved this sin of having relations with angels, going after strange flesh. 
And that explains why the men of the city went to such great lengths to get at these guests in Lot's home. They didn't just turn to one another to receive pleasure. They kept pressing. They were crazed. And they were governed by their fleshly desires. Back to Genesis 19. In verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. What a sad, sad place to be. Lot goes out to warn the rest of his family of this judgment. The angels mention his sons. Lot doesn't even go to his sons to warn them. And the natural explanation is that he knew they were already too far corrupted by the city. There's no way that they would heed this warning, so he doesn't even bother going to talk to them. But he does go to his sons-in-law, and they, they took it as a joke. It's so disheartening when your family and even your close friends choose to ignore the warnings in front of them when they choose to reject God. In this case, I'm sure that they thought something like, well, nothing like that could ever happen here. Look at the city. The city's too mighty and our people are too strong to be overthrown by anything. There is this air of pride throughout the city. Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50. The Lord God himself lists the iniquities of Sodom and the cities around her. Included in that list is pride. Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50 reads, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. It seems his sons-in-law didn't heed his warning at all, because verse 15 says, When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. There's no mention of his married daughters or of their spouses. Just the two daughters who were unmarried, who were still living with him at the time. So they must have completely rejected him when he came to warn them. You you Bible thumper, not a Bible thumper, but... You get the idea. You crazy person following God, 
What are you talking about? Nothing like that's going to happen. Things are going to continue as they've always been. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. It sounds like the angels literally have to drag Lot and his family out of the city. How stubborn does he need to be? Goodness. How set is his heart on this city? He was obviously reluctant to leave behind this life of compromise that he'd built for himself. What a sad place to be. There are better things. And we know on this side of it, God's just trying to help him. He's trying to spare this righteous lot. And although he's righteous, he's not perfect. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. And now Lot begins to bargain with these angels. I wouldn't say he's in a great position to do so, but that's what he chooses to do. He wants to stay in a smaller city that's nearby, in the plains, instead of fleeing to the mountains. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. So the angel concedes to Lot's request, but still urges him to move quickly. And he said to him, this is the angel now, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. Listen, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. What an interesting phrase. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. The angel has been ordered not to bring God's judgment on the city until Lot and his few family members were to safety. And this confirms the point that God was trying to make to Abraham in chapter 18. The judge of all the earth will do right. He is righteous in his judgments. And to the very end of the scripture, God's judgments are right. To the very end of the age. There are two places in Revelation where God is praised for his fair and righteous judgments. Revelation 16, 4 through 6. In this passage, an angel praises God for his equitable judgments. Then in verse 7, another voice from the altar says, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And then again in Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2, a great multitude praises God for his just destruction of the city of Babylon. Will God destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
1 Thessalonians 5.9 says emphatically that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's wrath is coming, and it's closer today than it was yesterday. But that wrath is coming on an unbelieving world. I don't believe that the born-again believer in Christ will have to endure the wrath of God, as per 1 Thessalonians 5.9. And this account of Lot provides us with a picture of God's heart in the matter. He says, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. Yet he sent his angels in to drag out only four people. And the angel said he could do nothing until they had arrived to safety. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. It's evident in the language that's used here that Lot's wife regarded the city with pleasure. It wasn't simply the act of looking at the city that condemned her, but there was a deep desire for it. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. And he follows that statement with this. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. That's found in Luke 17, verses 32 and 33. As followers of Christ, we are to turn away from the old life, the life that we were living in the world, and now walk in the Spirit. We must forsake our life in the world for a life with Christ. And it is such a dangerous place to be when we're trying to hold on to some of the revelries that we enjoyed in the world. That's a difficult and a dangerous place to live your life. Jesus says no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You just can't do it. And Jesus' statement, whoever wants to save his life shall lose it, is also recorded in several other places in the Gospels. Matthew 10.39, 16.25, Mark 8.35, Luke 9.24, and the one we referenced, Luke 17.33. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and towards all the, plain, the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot 
had dwelt. God remembered Abraham. And he remembered the conversation that he had with them, the point he was trying to get across to him. He remembered Abraham's intercession for the righteous of the cities. And he did not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He sent righteous Lot to safety. In fact, he was more gracious than even to save Lot only. He saved Lot and his daughters. And next week, we'll see the tremendous impact that a worldly life had on Lot's family. And we'll finish out chapter 19 and into 20, possibly 21. And it's just really sad to see the degradation of Lot. At first, he was living with Abraham, and then they split, and he went down and pitched his tent toward the city of Sodom, kind of facing it, you know, kind of looking at it during the day, daydreaming, longing to be down there in the city. And then we fast forward, and he's living in the city. And then we fast forward a little more, he's in the gate of the city. He has a prominent position there. Although he was righteous, he was living in a compromised position. He was living with the world. There are Christians today who will say, and I've heard it, the church is not prospering because they just need to lean into what's being taught in the schools. They need to lean into millions of years for evolution. They're not prospering because they're not doing that. They need to blend in more. They need to assimilate with the world. They need to look like them. That is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. We are never called to blend in with the world. We are called to be a separate people, to be distinct. We are called to a heavenly calling. And Lot is a great example of what not to do. And we'll finish next week by seeing the result of that, of living in the world. Let's finish out in a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed.